0: happy saturday it's july 24th 2021 and you are listening to morning meeting i'm ashley baker the style editor of airmail
1: i'm michael haney one of the deputy editors here at airmail ashley let the games begin it's saturday
0: it's saturday it's olympic time michael uh you and i actually just got off the tennis court i think we were inspired
1: yes you inspired me to come and do a little tennis clinic this morning and what was our pro's name
0: Shout out to our buddy James out in Montauk. Good times were had by all.
1: James had us running ragged. Uh, first time I've been on a court in since last summer when I saw you out here. And it was great. I'm pleased to tell everyone, do not challenge Ashley's forehand.
0: <laughs> Michael and I are just looking for another doubles team to play against. So if you guys know where to find us, we are ready for action.
1: Yeah ready for action. Yeah, the Games have begun in Tokyo. The Games have begun up in space with Jeff Bezos flying around. It's been that kind of week. Highs and lows, right?
0: Serious highs and serious lows. I mean, it remains to be seen if the Olympics will be completely brilliant or a total disaster. I mean, it's such a strange moment for this because on one hand, we need the inspiration that athletics can provide and we need the ultra highs, right, of watching these incredible competitors who have been training for much of their lives. However, we've got the Delta variant looming large over every action and every competition. And frankly, Michael, I have to say the reports that I've been reading uh, coming out of Olympic Village in Tokyo are a little scary.
1: I think they're scary only because they have to sleep on beds made of cardboard to prevent Olympic Village sexcapades.
0: I read that story in the post, too. I think you and I probably are getting too much of our Olympics coverage from the New York Post. But I mean, I feel like these guys deserve better. Like, can't they do a partnership with Casper or something like this needs to improve?
1: (laughs) There's something for the next Olympics. See, you're already doing some product placements. I like it. Good.
0: I mean, look, Ralph Lauren can outfit these guys and they look pretty great. Like, why can't we get them nicer beds, frankly? Also, I was surprised by how much sex was being had. I didn't know. I didn't know that the Olympics were a hotbed of fornication.
1: If we can put Jeff Bezos into orbit, can't we get good? Mattresses for the Olympic athletes? Is it too much to ask?
0: They deserve a little fun, frankly. What's your favorite Olympic sport? Summer Olympics?
1: Mm, well,. I don't know. I always end up crying at half the things. I'm a big fan of the decathlon. I love the gymnastics. I'm intrigued to see what happens with the men's basketball team, which is, to put it delicately, sucked in the warm-up tournaments. I think the great things about the Olympics is like all of a sudden you find yourself totally rooting for rowing and sculling on all these sports you never see. But especially, I'm always crazy about the swimming. So that's, that's another one to look forward to.
0: I'm crazy about the swimming. Yes. Yeah. All right. Well, we know how we're going to be spending our downtime this week, but until then, Michael, let's get to the issue because we have a lot of very pressing stories that we need to discuss.
1: Yeah, bring it on.
0: Michael, we have a fascinating view from here this week by Andrew Rivkin out of Russia. And I have to say, I learned a lot. We knew that Papa, as Putin is called, and sarcastically, it must be said, in Moscow's political circles has had quite a few wins lately, right? There's some amount of understanding now between leaders of Russia and the U.S., thanks to the summit in Geneva. The economy is resilient. Navalny is behind bars. His, la- his lawyers are labeled as foreign agents. And even Pussy Riot has fled the country after months of intermittent arrests. Finally, the upcoming parliamentary elections, which of course are curated by Russian security services, are going to produce yet another rubber stamp body. So life was looking good for... Putin until we came into this pesky little problem of COVID-19. And it turns out that if we thought we had it bad in the U.S. when it comes to vaccine hesitancy, it's much more pronounced in Russia. 54% of Russians say they're not getting the vaccine and only 19% of the population has had the shot so far.
1: Yeah. And it's led to, of course, Russia, which is they didn't invent the black market. They've always sort of perfected the black market. So the government said they want people to have this kind of QR code as proof of being vaccinated. And while official statistics show a steady rise in vaccination in Moscow, there's been this sort of growth in people who've paid somewhere up to $500 for a QR code that allowed them to get into a table at a restaurant because the government started to require restaurant owners, you had to have a QR code in order to eat at a restaurant, right? So that, of course, led to this black market. But one of my favorite moments in here that he reports is Boris Zarkov, who has a restaurant called White Rabbit, which is based in Moscow, it's number 23 in the world world's 50 best restaurant list, he led a crew of upper-class Muscovites to his new venue on the banks of the Volga River, and the theme of the restaurant's opening party was Burlaki, which is named after these impoverished laborers in Tsarist Russia who had to haul barges manually on the river and often died doing it. So there were two menus offered at the Dhaka, reminiscent of aristocratic Russians staring idly at cherry orchards of the world around them, burned and of course, burlaki, after the serfs who made it all possible. So Moscow's in crowd showed up in slave costumes and posts for the camera. The restaurant, of course, has gotten rave reviews.
0: The strangest and most hopeful result of all of this is that the Kremlin's worst nightmare is coming to life. The opposition isn't dead. And ordinary Russians, who have habitually been very passive when it comes to asserting their human rights, are standing up to the Kremlin. And as he reports, democracy has to start somewhere, even if it's a grassroots movement of people demanding their right to die from the virus. So this could be the one thing that Putin can't actually control. And if that's the case, it has massive implications for a democracy and also for the future of Russia.
1: Yeah, fantastic piece of reporting and just so really interesting to see how it plays out for Putin over the next few months.
0: Michael, on a subject that's more close to home, we have a marvelous piece about the girl boss phenomenon from Lee Stein. I love Lee Stein. She's a great writer. She's a poet and also a novelist. And her novel Self-Care came out last year. It was sort of a send up of the female founded wellness culture. Very goopy. We love all things scoop. Anyway, so Lee has a great piece in the issue for us this week about how she has some sympathy for these girl bosses, many of whom were, quote unquote, canceled for, quote, failing at feminism. And she asks, is this progress? So she brings up examples like Audrey Gelman from The Wing, Ty Haney from Outdoor Voices, Leandra Medine-Cohen from Man Repeller, Christine Barbrick from Refinery, and discusses like the public disgrace that they encountered during the pandemic, like, she just sort of revisits what exactly happened and what that, whether or not we're better off for all of these female founded companies having gone belly up.
1: Well, I mean, what I found so smart about her piece is, you know, she references this 1976 essay that Joe Freeman wrote for Ms. Magazine called Trashing the Dark Side of Sisterhood, where it sort of talks about Lee sort of brings that forward and says, you know, why are these women held to this accountability standard that men aren't held to, right?
0: Yeah. And I think, Michael, she brings up a really important point, too, about the evolution of these businesses. And she writes, the more I thought about what a female founder owes her employees, investors, and customers, the more I saw the conflict between the expectations of venture capitalism and the demands of socially conscious consumers. And she makes a very smart point. Once you've made this decision to raise money from venture capitalists, all of a sudden, your investors are expecting very fast growth. So the imperative of your business evolves from making your customers happy to making your investors happy. And therein lies the rub for many of these companies.
1: Right. I mean, as she says, you know, Leandra Medine-Cohen, um, the founder of Man Repeller, was felt to lack sufficient awareness of, of race and class privilege. And when she addressed her audience by sharing her intentions to learn and grow and do better, her response was, sorry, not good enough. And, you know, Man Repeller now no longer exists. So it seems to me this idea that there, it, it's never enough for these what- these audiences expect of these quote-unquote girl boss founders to be delivering, right?
0: Exactly. And she brings up these boy bosses, which, by the way, is a term we should be using more, like Adam Newman from WeWork, Travis Kalanick from Uber, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, and Zuckerberg. And the fact that they're celebrated for moving fast and breaking things, even what gets broken is the morale and will of your staff. Because again, their mission is to deliver returns to their investors versus creating a utopian workplace, although many of them do try to do that at the same time. So really thoughtful piece from Lee Stein.
1: Yeah. Great piece.
0: Well, Michael, we have a great writer who also tackles some of the issues plaguing the workplace right now. Okay. Kat Rosenfeld is here to talk to us about employers versus employees when it comes to the matter of returning to the physical workplace.
1: Yeah. And I'm looking forward to talking to her about this because this is something I don't know if you have experienced. Like, I know many people who own their own businesses or else work in business. And there's been this tension now about bringing when they've told employees they've got to come back to the office what employees expect around this right
0: anyway let's get cat on and she can give us the the intel on what's really going on
2: all right welcome cat thank you so much for joining us thanks for having me So you get into one of the most pressing issues of our time in your piece this week about the wars of the workplace. Tell us a little bit about what's going on from your point of view as we discuss a return to the office.
3: Well, it seems like there's a sort of a a war on between employers who, for some reasons understandable and some maybe less sympathetic, uh, want people to come back to the offices that they're uh, paying rent for, often in very expensive cities, and employees who've gotten used to working from home over the course of the past year, you know, who like their setups, who like the flexibility and the freedom, and who don't want to have to come back to an office.
2: How do you see this all playing out? Especially among, let's talk about Gen Z specifically, Gen Z and millennials, and like, where do you sort of see these guys falling?
3: You know, obviously the, you know, digital native generations are much more comfortable with remote work, much more comfortable using all of the telecommunications tools available to them. And I think that there is a certain amount of intergenerational resentment happening. The people who don't want them to take advantage of these tools are seen as boomers who are kind of either cluelessly or maliciously making a power play saying no you have to be back where we can monitor you because we don't trust you we don't trust you to be productive there's obviously a great deal of resentment aimed at that not just because it's kind of crappy to feel like your boss is monitoring you nobody likes to feel like they're like the eye of sauron is on them all the time but a lot of people have had a very productive year despite the challenges of having to work completely remotely all the time and they want to keep doing that. They want their bosses to be open to trying new things. You know, there's been this expectation that employees at the entry level or the assistant level are always going to be accessible to their bosses. You know, they can ping you anytime, on weekends, in the evenings, when you're at home, and that you're supposed to tolerate that and you're supposed to be responsive to that. But when the employees say, hey, let's utilize this technology in a way that also makes our lives easier, give us something that that benefits us, the bosses are balking. And I think there's a sense that that's, you know, understandably pretty unfair.
1: Well, one of the things I think that was, as you report in your piece, you had that survey from Bloomberg, I think, which said more than 50% of employees under 40 would quit if they were forced to come back to the office five days a week, right?
3: Yeah. Yeah. That seems to be the under 40 people value flexibility in the workplace more than they value anything else, more than salary, more than benefits. It's what they want.
1: But what's interesting to me, I mean, and just anecdotally, I know more than I have a friend who runs a Company in San Francisco, another friend who's got a very big job here in New York. And they've experienced this sort of standoff firsthand and saying, listen, we're going to be reopening after Labor Day. We need you back in the office. And all of them also, by the way, have said, listen, we're going to take the best of what we learned in lockdown and make work more flexible. So all of them are already beginning with four-day work weeks, no meeting Fridays, you can raise your hand for a a work from home day. And yet, you're exactly right, like the under-40 side is like, yeah, no, I don't understand why you're making me come back to the office.
3: Yes, the fact that we're in this labor shortage right now is causing the power to flow in a way that's a little bit new, a little bit hard for people to get used to. The question is whether it's always going to be that way, and I'm not persuaded that it is. This idea that we're never going to go back to normal social professional interaction. I think that there are a lot of people, even for whom working from home was a sort of a blessed relief for the past year. Eventually the bloom was going to come off that rose and then we're going to have to figure out what actually allows a company to function.
1: I thought one of the most interesting pieces of news that came out this week as well was Apple, right, which is seen as like the company everyone wants to work for because of the delta variant delayed their return until October now they pushed it back a month internally it's been reported that almost 2,000 workers have signed a letter to Tim Cook the the CEO saying that if he forces employees back into the office some people will leave the company so it's it's not just small companies that are this, it's companies with these vaunted cultures that are struggling to get people back
3: yes well I think Even before the pandemic, I think that Apple was having trouble retaining people because the cost of living in Silicon Valley is so high or in San Francisco, wherever they're they're based. People were really struggling to make it work to live there. And this possibility of remote work presented a solution. And there's a lot of resentment that they don't seem to want to take advantage of it or be a little bit more open-minded.
2: And that brings up also all the issues around taxes, right? Because like, if you're living in Ohio and working for Apple, do you need to be, first of all, do you need to be paid a Silicon Valley sort of tiered salary? And do you need to, where are you paying your taxes? You know, like it just all gets very confusing. And I think these are issues that a lot of these employers are trying to sort out right now. Another thing that you have in your piece that I thought was fascinating is how you talk about how Zoom life has exacerbated these class resentments among employers and employees. Tell us a little bit about what's happening with Zoom backgrounds.
3: Yeah, so that's been an interesting aspect of it. You know, when the workplace becomes your home, suddenly everybody is seeing into each other's homes. And one person I spoke to said that this had actually made his sort of culture or his interpersonal dynamics with his colleagues better and more robust. They felt like they were getting to see into each other's lives more and it was, you know, making things more collaborative. It was bringing them closer. But Uh, that was an unusual takeaway. The thing that's happened more is you have, especially in the glamour industries like media, publishing, fashion, where one of the expectations was that you're going to live in New York City, someplace very expensive and make very little money because they're sort of prestige jobs, but they don't pay. That You had people forced back home and jockeying for space um, in their apartments that they share with three or four roommates, these tiny little spaces. sort of a a limitation on how much aesthetically pleasing space there is available to make your Zoom background. And They're looking into their bosses' homes and seeing the New York City skyline out of a giant, beautiful window, or they're seeing, like, a gleaming marble kitchen with two islands behind them. And one of the really crazy anecdotes that I heard in the process of reporting this piece was from a media executive who was in her 30s. Her boss apparently chastised the like assistant level employees for not having nice enough Zoom backgrounds as she was sitting in her, you know, million dollar house with her beautiful kitchen behind her.
1: But it is clear as you're reporting that just this generational sort of divide now between people who would rather choose quality of life over the job, right?
3: Yeah, that seems to be it. Although I mean it's a it's a different kind of trade off that I think a lot of people felt that the boundaries had already been so blurred between work and home, you know, with this expectation of sort of being on call all the time, that this is a way of taking back, not the boundaries, which are perhaps gone and not coming back, but reclaiming some balance.
1: Didn't France pass a law where you can no longer email people for work after seven o'clock at night or be required to return that email?
3: Oh, I haven't heard about that, but that sounds like a good idea to me. One of the things that came out, I think, earlier this month was a study that started showing that there might be some actual benefits to commuting as much as everyone hates to do it, that to maintain that separation and to travel you know between your home and your workplace that this transformation or this shift like a code switch takes place and like it's like a transformation in your and how you think of yourself you know you put on your work personality and shed your home personality and we've lost the ability to do that and after a year people are starting to find that they miss it or that they needed that
2: Kat what's your work from home sound like
3: my work from home setup. Well, I mean, I've been a, a freelance writer for more than ten years, so I had a big jump start on the work from home thing. And I just sit on a sofa, <laughs> and for the past year and change, I've been sitting on a sofa. And the only thing that's different is that now I have a direct, constant view of my husband while he does his job at what is supposed to be my desk. <laughs> but I never used it, so it's all right.
1: Now, cats making me wonder what, if, what Am I better? work from home person or, or work from the office person, but I feel it's like you know something that's probably showing up on dating profiles now.
3: <laughs> right, a point of compatibility. Yeah, well, you know, I I've become a much worse work from home person since I have somebody in the house with me all the time. So I'm looking forward to the return to in-person work because it means that my coworker will go back to the office and I'll have the place to myself.
1: Well, thanks Kat. It's a terrific piece. Thanks very much.
0: Michael, on a book front, we have an excellent eight questions for Jeff Manat and Nicola Twilley, who wrote this marvelous new book, Until Proven Safe, The History and Future of Quarantine. They had a great conversation with our fearless books editor, Jim Kelly, about the nature of quarantines in the past and how... We should expect them to evolve or not evolve post coronavirus.
1: Yeah. And what I love about this book and this conversation is these two authors began working on a book about quarantine years ago, you know, before anyone, any one of us had really sort of thought about what that is, aside from seeing astronauts coming back from the moon and having to quarantine. It was, I think for many of us seen something from A Forgotten Time, but they produced, as Jim says, a superb story, part travelogue, part science, part history. And as he says, wholly fascinating.
0: Fun fact, I discovered through reading this piece that the first quarantine sort of dates back to July of 1377, shortly after the Black Death arrived in Europe. And that was when officials in Dubrovnik, which was then known as Ragusa, part of the Republic of Venice, proclaimed that anyone coming in from a, quote, plague infested areas would not be allowed to enter the city until they had spent a month on an island nearby. Uh, It started as a 30 day waiting period. It was extended to 40 days or a quarantina in the Venetian dialect. And that's the origin of the word as we know it.
1: Yeah. And I think one of the things I love in the, in the thinking about from these two writers is, I think as Jeff Manon says, upsetting thing for so many people in, in quarantine is if you really get down to it on a mythic level, it's an in quarantine, we're waiting to see if we are the ones who are diseased and dangerous to see whether an invisible monster, almost like in the original alien, will emerge from within.
0: Terrifying.
1: I think what's also fascinating is they point out, many people don't realize that your quote unquote smart home that you have these days with Alexa or whatever digital assistant you have and all these cameras and that in fact all these gadgets hooked up to your internet and your search history for example Amazon has already patented a way for Alexa to recognize signs of sickness and the sounds of people coughing nearby and Google of course has long been experimenting with ways to predict flu patterns based on people's internet searches so it's almost as though the data is already being gathered for what areas might in the future be said like there's clearly a pattern here we've got to quarantine this area so it's all that data that becomes accessible just by what we give out into the world through our, our digital footprint, right?
0: Scary. Yes. Yeah. Well, on a slightly less sinister note...
1: You know who had made a lot of good use of their time in lockdown, Ashley? Are you a fan of Bear Grylls?
0: No. What are they?
1: <laughs> it's not a they. It's a guy. Do you know Bear Grylls? The British adventurer, the guy who's got...
0: Oh! Sorry. I have summer barbecues on the mind. Yes. <laughs> yes, Michael. But tell us more.
1: Not Bear Grylls. A grill for grilling bears, Bear grills. who, if you've ever seen his show, the man who sort of conquers all things outdoors, any challenge. But his Joseph Beaumont reports have got his son, Jesse, basically spent the last year and a half, he's 18 years old, and he spent the last year and a half painting, just he'd never painted before. And now he's got a great show up in London's Battersea Power Station that is doing quite well, selling swiftly, as I say. So that's the positive way to put yourself to to get something out of lockdown and or quarantine,
0: right? Yeah, absolutely. I wonder how many novels have been I mean, I'm sure millions. We should get Binky Urban on here to tell us about all the uh, manuscripts she's been going through of novels written during lockdown. But yeah, let's hope that the next great American novel is on its way to us.
1: Speaking of writing, did you see Prince Harry just sold his memoir for a reported $20 million.
0: Least surprising development ever.
1: I was more intrigued by his ghostwriter, a very talented writer, J.R. Moringer. If you've never read his book, The Tender Bar, it's a beautiful book, but J.R. is getting a reported million dollars to ghostwrite the book for him, with him.
0: Honestly, 120th of the total fee is the least they can do.
1: Exactly, right? Writers deserve
0: more than that.
1: But no, J.R. is a fantastic writer, not just of The Tender Bar, But, Ashley, speaking of our beginning at tennis, do you know who else he co-wrote a memoir with?
0: Andre Agassi, Michael. I've been all over this book. In fact, confidential to my friend Lauren... You need to return that to me, okay? I hope you enjoyed it, but I love that book. I reread it all the time.
1: Exactly. So, I mean, if anyone can do a book justice, it's Jr. I mean, if you've never read Andre Agassi's memoir *Open*, which Jr. wrote and actually got co-writing credit because Agassi thought it was—he did such a great job with it. So, I think it couldn't. It was a brilliant choice by Harry to select Jr.
0: 100%. Yeah. Well, we'll be reading this Michael, of course. We'll be following the developments minute by minute. But
1: do you think Harry will end up going up into space with Jeff Bezos at some point? Can't you see that one coming soon?
0: He's one of the few people who can afford it, so sure.
1: Yeah, Ashton Kutcher back out, so He did. You didn't see that? No. He was supposed to go up on Virgin Galactic or something and Mila Kunis said, "No, no, no, you're not doing that." He had actually like paid for his ticket or something already.
0: I mean, it seems like to me, like, I would love to feel weightlessness and experience this moment of transcendence, but I can think of a lot better ways to spend $600,000. Like, think of how many COVID shots you could buy for, like, an underserved community somewhere around the world. Anyway.
1: If you want to feel weightless in the spirit of transcendence, you know what you should do. You should talk to our good friend, Alexander Lebrano, who's got a great piece in this week's issue, About rosé wine, right?
0: Oh, you know, Michael, I really deal with the most pressing matters here at Airmail HQ. But yes, our beloved Alec Lebrano is back. He has been investigating one of the top news stories of the summer, rosé. Okay, as you know, it's Instagram's favorite drink. And Alec looks at why that is and who are some of the players behind it, both celebrity and traditional.
1: And isn't Angelina Jolie supposedly going to sell her share in the Chateau Mirival, the... uh producer she owns with Brad Pitt. Is that true?
0: I thought Pitt was divesting from that. I think it's still up for debate as they sort out details of their divorce and custody arrangement and all of that. But by the way, it's weird. Like Miraval has become incredibly popular in the realm of Rosé. I don't know about you, but I'm seeing it all the time now, like dinner parties and cocktail parties and at restaurants.
1: Incredibly popular. And by the way, not inexpensive. So yeah, you know,
0: are you? I'm not really a rosé drinker.
1: I used to be back in the day when I was drinking, but no more. But it's, as I would say, eminently quaffable in the hot days. And that's, I think, part of it. It's a slippery slope on that pink slide.
0: I agree. It's too quaffable. Like, have a glass sitting outside on a summer afternoon, and all of a sudden you've downed the bottle and your day is over. So that is why I'm not a, a big rosé drinker. Although...
1: You just keep looking at it like it's high C or something, and you're like, whoa...
0: Yeah, or like it's pink lemonade. Exactly. And it's hot and you're thirsty and you're dehydrated from the beginning and all of a sudden it just goes very downhill.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: So I will stick with my white wine, people. I will stick with my Etna Biancos and occasionally a homemade margarita. Boom.
1: Thinking of wine, you know, we also have a very good piece this week. Our headline is The King Lear of Wine. And if you're a fan of Spanish wine, there's a producer named Alejandro Fernandez who revived the fortunes of the Ribeiro del Duero wine region in the 80s with his Bodegas pesquera winery. But it's a fascinating little piece about, and he had, at uh, the last minute, he rewrote, his will about five days before he died to exclude his daughters from uh, inheriting anything because he, as he said to a Spanish newspaper a couple of years ago, my daughters have been taking over everything little by little. I want what is mine, my pisquera of all my life, but they've taken away everything and I've done since I was a child. So apparently much to their chagrin and surprise and to make a little bit of a wine pun crushed their hopes of Inheriting.
0: Oh, Michael, <laughs> the drama never ceases with these people.
1: Goes to show you, right? The rich are different.
0: Well, before we head off into the weekend, do you have anything at all you could recommend?
1: I do have something I can recommend. Well, first of all, I just want to say, like many people, I'm probably, uh, you know, not just that the the games have begun, but the, the games have returned for those of you who are fans of. Ted Lasso, the Jason Sudeikis show on Apple Plus TV, if you've never seen it. Highly recommend you get caught up with season one so you can enjoy the return of season two. Have you ever watched this, Ashley?
0: No, I have not, Michael. Please.
1: Okay. I think Charlie would really like it. It's a very smart, wonderful show, super funny. I was brought to it through Brooke. And what I love about it is it's it's about the good guys always win, optimism, doing the right thing, but it's a comedy and uh, the characters super well drawn i think it's a very smart show so but i'm not here to talk to you about ted lasso i'm here to talk to you about a wonderful thriller. If you've never seen it, it's from 1970. It is a. It was the last film written and directed by Jean-Pierre Melville, if you know his work. He is the sort of prince of the new wave French gangster fit picture. He did Bob Le Flambeur, les Samurai with Alain Delon. He brings back Alain Delon here with a mustache, but still with a trench coat, driving an American muscle car of Plymouth Fury through the streets of Paris as he rounds up a rogues gallery of guys to pull off what is an unbelievable jewelry heist on the Place Vendôme. It's got, as I say, Alain Delon, Montaigne Bourville. And it was shot, it's beautifully shot by Henri Descartes, who also shot The Samurai, The Foreign Blows, Elevator to the Gallo, Purple Noon. So it is super stylish. This, and it's the kind of film like this that they have where they, where they do this jewelry heist. There must be about 12 minutes where there's no dialogue as... um I think Jay Hoberman once said in the New York Times, it's like a bullfight watching these guys do this thing and they have to get through all this security to do it. But it's a tour de force of filmmaking. Like I said, if you're looking for a super smart, super stylish thriller, I'd highly recommend this.
0: Brilliant. I'll watch it.
1: Okay. And you, my dear?
0: Well, Michael, I've been going to see a lot of movies in the theater. My new favorite theater globally. Now this is going to shock you. It used to be the Arclight in Los Angeles with Film Forum in New York being close second. It is now the Sag Harbor Cinema and our home away from home of Sag Harbor, New York. I can't get over how nice this is. So this theater burned to the ground probably two years ago and a group of donors came together and paid for it. And thank goodness the beautiful marquee was uh, unharmed in the blaze. But it is such an incredible theater. So well done. The sound quality is amazing. The projection quality is next level. And most importantly... The popcorn machine, which apparently was funded by Billy Joel, I think it's called the Billy Joel Popcorn Center or something, is the best movie theater popcorn I've ever had, ever. So
1: don't go popping.
0: <laughs> so Sag Harbor Cinema, I'm going to go there tonight actually to see the Anthony Bourdain documentary. We'll discuss that next week. We have a lot of Bourdain on the mind these days. Um, but what I another thing I'm going to recommend is this great TV show that I just finally saw. Um, it came out I think three years ago in France, and it's now not. Or it came out in 2019. It's now on Netflix. It's called Huge in France. And it's an American comedy series. It stars Gad Elmaleh. And in France, he's just known as Gad. Say Gad. And that's like a punchline throughout the entire series. But he's a very popular comedian in France, often referred to as the Jerry Seinfeld of France. And he has moved to Los Angeles because he wants to get closer to his son, from whom he is estranged. And his son, Luke, is a caricature of an LA teenager. He's aspiring to become a model. And his mother is an author and a life coach. And his mother's boyfriend is this retired actor named Jason Allen Ross, who spends most of his time dreaming of getting back into acting and pumping iron at the local gym late at night. But it's incredibly funny. It's like a great fish out of water story. uh, And Gad is really at the height of his powers here, I think. And, you know, there's some fun cameos too throughout, uh, including one from Jerry Seinfeld himself. So highly recommended. It's eight episodes on Netflix and a lot of fun. On that note, Michael, will you please read us out?
1: Avec plaisir to go with both of our French recommendations this week. See, that's with pleasure.
0: (laughs) Vas-y, continue.
1: Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alessandra Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Nathan King and Chris Garrett. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. The theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please do subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on Airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We will be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime... Be sure and subscribe at Apple Music or Spotify. Most of all, thank you for joining us.